everybody. Welcome back to Take a Break. Your host, Frank Kerrigan here. Um, today's episode is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be about ancient architecture. I just got done um, with a class taking um, called Survey of Art, and we learned about different art and architecture throughout different periods throughout history. Um, and today I'm going to deep dive and explore four different architectural styles and give you a little insight into the common themes, um, what architectural styles were common during that time, and some of the reasons behind it. Today, I'm going to be going over the Egyptian architecture. I'm also going to do Greek, Roman, and Romanesque. So let's get started. Okay, so let's get started. The first topic I'm going to be deep diving into, the first period, if you want to call it, is the Egyptian architecture. And ancient Egyptian architecture displays some of the most impressive and exquisite works of art in history and understanding the motivation behind these construction, the construction of these monuments um, and their and structures is imperative to understand the culture of ancient Egyptians because they're often associated closely with just pyramids of Giza and the Sphinx, but it's actually quite diverse and it takes on a number of forms such as administrative buildings, temples, tombs, palaces, and private homes of nobility and commoners. And much of the art and architecture represents the belief in life after death in respect of the gods, aimed to preserve forms and conventions that were held to reflect the perfection of the world and to embody the correct relationship between humankind, the pharaoh, the king, um, and the gods. There are many different periods in Egyptian history ranging from the Old Kingdom in 2650 to 2150 BC to the late period 712 to 332 BC. And today I'm going to break down some of the most iconic pieces of architecture that's come out of Egypt and explore them a little bit more in depth. Um, let's get started with talking about some of the building materials that they used. Um, the two principal building materials used in Egypt were unbaked mud brick and stone. From the Old Kingdom, 2575 to 2130 BCE onwards, stone was generally used for tombs, which were the eternal dwellings of the dead, and for temples, which were the eternal houses of the gods. And mud brick remained the domestic material used even for like royal palaces. It was also used for fortresses, the great walls of temple precincts and towns, and for subsidiary buildings in temple complexes. Let's get started talking about one of the first monument structures, um, the Stepped Pyramid of Dozier. This pyramid was for Dozier, the second king of the Third Dynasty, and it began as a mastaba and gradually expanded to become a stepped pyramid. And for a little bit of context, mastabas were the customary form for graves. They were rectangular monuments made of dried clay and brick, which covered underground passages where the deceased was entombed. Um, Dozier's visor, Amenhotep, he was an architect and he conceived a building that was super, super impressive for the king by stacking mastabas on top of one another, progressively making them smaller to form the shape we know now as a stepped pyramid. And since this is a podcast, you can't really, it's hard to picture, but just picture four squares just stacked on top of each other, getting smaller and smaller, forming a pyramid. Because the pyramids that we know are like flat on the sides, but these, it looks like stairs kind of. Um, and this was the first one of the first Egyptian pyramids, and it's in Saqqara, and it's surrounded by a limestone wall that contains 13 fake doorways, as well as a real colonnade entrance on the southeast side. And a little fun fact for you, there are 2.3 million blocks 
in this pyramid that weigh half a ton each. Half a ton. I don't know how they... That's insane and super cool, but the actual chamber of the tomb where the king's body was laid to rest, um, it was dug underneath or beneath the base of the pyramid as a maze of tunnels with rooms off the corridors to discourage robbers and protect the body and grave, and grave goods for the king. Um... And Dozier's burial chamber was carved out of granite, and to reach it, one had to navigate the corridors, which were filled with thousands of stone vessels inscribed with the name of earlier kings. The next pyramid, or tomb, we're going to be talking about is the tomb of Hatshepsut. Um, she commissioned her mortuary temple at some at some point soon after coming into power in 1479 BCE, and had designed it to tell the story of her life and her reign and surpass any other pyramid tomb in elegance and grandeur. The temple was designed by Hatshepsut's steward and confidant, Senemat. Um, and Senemat modeled it carefully on that of um, Menetep II, but took every aspect of the earlier building and made it larger, longer, and more elaborate, um, being built into the side of a mountain like Menetep's. So... Cinemat said, I'm going to take what you did and make it my own and make it ten times better, which is like, okay, go off. And the second floor is lined with Sphinx up until the ramp on the third floor. Um, Sphinx heads were used as, like, protection, spiritual guardian, usually bearing a headdress, and the headdress was called a nemes. Um, they were pieces of stripped headcloth worn by the pharaohs in ancient Egypt. And... You can see that on, on the Sphinx and um, with the headdress, and those were meant to ward off um, intruders coming in. And the third level of the temples, the third level of the temple all featured colonnade and elaborate reliefs, paintings, and statuaries, which were very common in Egyptian architecture. And for a little bit of context, again, a colonnade is a row of columns, generally supporting an entablature, which is a row of horizontal moldings, used either as an independent feature as part of the building. Uh, a relief sculpture is a um, technique where the sculpted elements remain attached to the solid background of the same material, as well as a sunken relief is the technique of a relief sculpture in which the figures and images are carved in low relief. And most people know what hieroglyphic, hieroglyphics are, but it was the formal Egyptian writing system. And now for a segment called My Dream Tomb. Okay, so for this segment called My Dream Tomb, I'm just going to switch it up, make it less educational, and try to like have some fun. And I'm just going to talk about if I were to build a tomb, like right now, what would I put in it? So... I don't know. I'm just so extra all the time. Like, I obviously I'm going to want the um, the Sphinx heads. Like, if you're going to come break into my tomb, get out. Um, be scared by the Sphinx heads. Like, you're leaving. You don't belong here. My gorgeous dead body's here. And I don't know. I would honestly, like, be like que the queen at Shepset and literally build mine to the side of a mountain. Like, that sounds so good. And I just would want to have, like, I don't know. Like, none of these people had, like, people guarding it, for what I know. But I just would want to have, like, really, like, I don't know. I just want to have, like, my mom guard the tomb, honestly. Because she'd be like, literally leave. What else would I? I just want, like, 
Well, I'm like a big Broadway person. I love musicals. I just want to have like each wall be painted like a musical. I don't know. Like, I'm just trying to think. It needs to be gorgeous inside. Like, these were from so long ago. Like, it was probably, it was probably gorgeous. But if when you go in it, like, I don't want mine to be made out of brick. Like, mine's made out of all marble. Um, literally, I just, mine needs to look gorgeous. It needs to look like, wow, who built that? Oh, you know, Emperor Frank? Yeah, literally me. Pharaoh? Me. I built it. And so, I think, I don't, but I'm going to, like, one-up the stepped pyramid of Dozier, and I'm just going to do, like, 2.4 million blocks. I know that this isn't a pyramid, but I'm going to I'm just going to, I just want to one-up everybody. Like, I want to be, like, a Manitap and be like, you, you guys don't know what's coming. You guys literally don't even know how amazing this is going to be. And so I'd have those things, but I'd also want to have like you know the like when you go to like your when you go to like your grandma's house and they give you like the caramel candies. Like I just want like a random bowl of like candy sitting in the front. It's like that'd be so fun. And like if you wanted to like come visit respectfully, just like take a little Werther's. Take those, like, strawberry-shaped, like, the strawberry candies. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody knows. Um, but, yeah, that's my dream tune. Thanks for listening. Okay, okay now that we finished that segment, I'm going to finish this off by saying that, architecturally, um, the pyramids and the temples throughout ancient Egypt show the complexity and design in which the time and the effort contributed significantly to their the Egyptian culture and the detailed symbolism produced by the architectural structures helped strengthen a deeper understanding of the journey and the life of the Egyptians and the dedication and hard work that went into completing these structures that portray such strong meaning honoring powerful and religious figures is amazing the dedication of craftsmanship and the accuracy helps powerful leaders and gods continue their journey through life and in modern day Um, and the formation and symbolism helps uncover the hidden mysteries that lie deep below the ancient world because ancient Egypt is something that we know a good amount about but very little about how things were built and how these things happened and today we are continuously driven to gain and search for more information about this particular ancient world and appreciate the amazing work and dedication that went into these buildings Okay, now we're on to Greek architecture. And this is probably one of my favorite architectural styles. I don't know, it's like, it's in competition with Romanesque, but we'll talk about that in the fourth segment. But the Greek architects provided some of the finest and most distinctive buildings in the entire ancient world. And some of their structures, such as temples, theaters, stadia, would become staple features of towns and cities. And the Greeks were concerned with simplicity, proportion, perspective and harmony in their buildings and this idea would go on to greatly influence architects in the Hellenistic period and in the Roman world Um, Greek architecture is well known and defined by its logic and order being that it's at the heart being that that is at the heart of Greek architecture mathematics determine the symmetry the harmony um, and unlike the Egyptian pyramid architecture that had been an early attempt but Greek architecture offered the first clear strong expression of a rational and national architectural creed. It is the supreme example of the intellect working logically to to create a unified aesthetic. And I just think that it's super cool how this is one of the first times that we see all these people come together to form one 
concrete system of how they do things and how they want everything to look. Um, the principal materials that they used were wood, and that was used to um, for supports and for roof beams. They used unba unbaked brick um, that was used for walls, especially of private houses, and they also used limestone and marble. And this was used for columns, some walls, and upper portions of temples and other public buildings, as well as terracotta, um, which was used for roof tiles and um, architectural ornaments. And for this part of the section, I'm going to be focusing mostly on the classical period of Greece. Um, during this time, the Greeks' architecture fell into three different orders, Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian. And I'm going to explore those more in depth right now. The Doric is the oldest, simplest, and most massive of the three Greek orders. Um, and it's been applied to temples beginning in the 7th century BC, and the columns are placed closely together and are often without bases, shafts, and um, are sculpted with concave curves called flutes. They have capitals, which is the crowning on the column, um, but those are usually plain on Doric columns. Um, they have the entablature, which is the space between the top of the column and the roof line, and a distinctive frieze, which is a decorative area above the columns and below the roof line which is decorated with vertical channels or triglyphs. And in between the triglyphs are spaces called metopes, which were commonly sculpted with figures and ornamentation, and the Doric order reached the pinnacle of perfection in the Parthenon. Um, and let's talk about that. The Parthenon was constructed between 447 and 432 BCE. The architects were Ictinos and Callicratus, and this was dedicated to the goddess Athena, Pallas, or Parthenos, um, which meant virgin. And the temple's main function was to shelter the monumental statue of Athena that was made by um, Phidias out of gold and ivory. Um, eight columns at the facade, and there are 17 columns at the flanks. Um, there's a cella, which is the inner room of the monument, and that was made to accommodate the oversized statue of Athena. And there's a line of six Doric columns supporting the front and back porch. Um, and there's also a colonnade of 23 smaller Doric columns surrounding the statue. And this is a great example of a treasury building because it was meant to hold the wealth of the city and eventually, over time, got turned into a church. The next order we're going to be talking about is Ionic. And the um, Ionic order was developed in the Ionic Islands in the 6th century BC. Roman historians Vitruvius compared this delicate order to a more female form of the Doric order, which he considered more male. And the Ionic was used for smaller buildings and interiors, and it's easy to recognize because of the two scrolls called volutes on its capital. And above the capital, um, its entablature is narrower than the Doric with a frieze cont containing a continuous band of sculpture on it, and it's one of the earliest and most striking examples of the Ionic Order, um, is the tiny temple to Athena Nike at the entrance of the Athens Acropolis, and it was designed and built by Callicratus from 448 to 421 BC. And now let's talk about that, the temple of Athena Nike. Athena was 
the goddess of victory, and it's the smallest temple at the Acropolis in Athens, and it's placed in the southwest corner. Its construction was completed in the year 420 BCE, and during the so-called High Classical Period by Callicratus, which is the same architect who was responsible for the construction of the Parthenon. They used white pentelic marble. It has columns at the front and back, but not on the sides of the cella. And like I said, the cella is the room, the central room. And this kind of floor plan is called an amp amphrio style. Um, because of the small size of the structure, there are only four columns on each side. The columns are monolithic, which means that each one of them was made of a single block of stone instead of horizontal columns, as is in the case of the Parthenon. And the Greeks considered their temples as a kind of monumental sculpture, which was supposed to be viewed from all sides and experienced in connection to its surroundings. It's considered a home of the deity represented in its statue and was not a place where regular people would enter. The believers would simply perform rituals in front of the temple where a small altar was placed. And in conclusion with the Greek architecture, we can definitely say that Greek architecture has provided not only many of the staple features of modern and Western architecture, but it's also given the world truly magnificent buildings and structures that have stood the test of time and continue to inspire people and um, show admiration for how amazing these structures are. And many of the buildings, like I just talked about, the Parthenon and Temple of Athena Nike, have become the instantly recognizable and ionic symbols of ancient Greece and continue to reflect the incredible inventions made by the people who lived here so long. Okay, now on to, I think, my second favorite architectural style. It's still between Greece and Roman. I am flipping it back and forth in my brain. I can't really tell, but Roman architecture is kind of similar to Greek architecture. It's just it's taken a lot of influences, but we're going to get into that right now. So Roman architecture continued the legacy left by the Greek, Greek architects and established the architectural orders, especially the Corinthian. Um, the Romans were also innovators, and they combined new construction techniques and materials with creative design to produce a whole range of brand new architectural structures. And typical innovative Roman buildings included um, the Basilica, which is the function of a building that is that of like a meeting hall, um, triumphal arches, which were freestanding monumental structures in the shape of an archway, amphitheaters, open air venues used for entertainment, and residential housing blocks. Many of the Roman architectural, architectural inventions were a response to the changing practical needs of Roman society, and... Um, Roman architects continued to follow the guidelines established by the classical order that the Greeks had first shaped, which is the Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian. Um, but the Corinthian was particularly favored in many Roman buildings, would have a particular, particularly Greek look to them. The Romans did, however, add their own ideas, and their version of the Corinthian capital became much more decorative. The Romans also created the composite capital, which mixed the volute of the Ionic order with the decorative leaves of the Corinthian. And the Tuscan column was another adaptation of a traditional, of a traditional idea, which was a form of Doric column, but with a smaller capital and more slender shaft that flutes in a molded base. The Tuscan column, as it became known in the Renaissance period, was especially used in domestic architecture, such as peristyles, which were a row of columns surrounding a space within a building, such as a court, um, internal garden, or edging a veranda or porch. Um, the Romans also favored monolithic columns rather than the rather than the Greek approach of using several drums stacked on top of each other, and like I said before, monolithic column is just one big long 
thing of rock or stone or um, marble. And in addition, the columns continued to be used even when they were no longer structurally necessary, and this was to give the buildings a traditional and familiar look. And columns now became a part of the wall itself in some buildings, which were called engaged columns, and they just function as pure decoration. And as with many other areas, the Romans took an idea and pushed it to its maximum possibility. And some of the materials they used, the Romans utilized naturally occurring materials like primary stone, timber, and marble. And manufactured materials consisted of brick, glass, and composite materials consisted of concrete. And one building that we're going to talk about is an amphitheater, which is the Colosseum. And the Colosseum was the second and largest permanent amphitheater built in the city of Rome. And it was used for various blood sports, including animal hunts, prisoner executions, and gladiatorial combat. Architecture of an amphitheater is meant to facilitate visibility from every seat in the arena. So if you're going to sit down there, you're bound to have a good seat. Um, the Colosseum, this amphitheater, consists of four levels, with the bottom three levels composed of 80 arches, each making possible the immense size of the structure and lightening the visual aspect of the bulk of a massive building. I've been there, and I feel like if they didn't have all this light and all these openings in the building, it would just seem like this huge concrete block. And having those openings and having all that light come in, because I've been inside too, is so necessary. I mean, most amphitheaters didn't have the roof over it, which allowed more light. But just having all of these open spaces makes the building feel, it makes it look lighter, if that makes any sense. And it just makes it feel airier and like, it's not as like enclosed in. Um, it was built between 70 AD and 80 AD under emperors um, Vespian, Titus, and Dominitian, um, which were the Flavian emperors, with the Flavian dynasty being best known for its vast construction program in the city of Rome, intended to restore the capital from the damage it had suffered during the Great Fire of 64, with architecture being much denser and heavier. Um, the first story is decorated with Tuscan order columns, like I said, resemble a Doric column, and the second story with Ionian columns, and the third one with Corinthian style columns in the outside was built with um, travertine limestone concrete used for the vaulted arches that created a ceiling slash hallway and 80 entrances were used in this amphitheater and now that we're done talking about the Colosseum now it's time for a segment called my dream amphitheater Hey, now for my dream amphitheater. So, this segment's just going to be me talking about if I were to... Somebody came up to me and said, Hey, build your own amphitheater right now, wherever you want. This is what I would do. I want my amphitheater to literally be just like the Coliseum. Just like twice as high. So just like, I don't know. I just want to like one-up everybody. And then I want it to be... Like, each, you know how, like, the Coliseum has, like, each row has different columns? I want each row to be a different color. So it's going to be, like, all the different shades of blue. And then there's going to be no gladiator fights in there. Boring. I need Broadway musicals to happen there. And I want those school lunchroom cafeteria fights to happen there. Because those are amazing. And since amphitheaters, you can see everything from anywhere you sit. The videos of it are going to be amazing. But guess what? 
I have a special guest with me, my roommate Carlos, and he's going to tell me what he wants his dream amphitheater to be. Hey, Carlos, what do you want your dream amphitheater to be? I think I would want mine to be like a huge sort of sports stadium. Like okay. uh, the modern ones are really nice. And then one of the ones in like L.A. currently has like all these like sort of window type things like with the light shining in so but, like the coliseum yeah it's pretty pretty hey get it but like but like way more modern looking and then it would be nice to have it where it could have like any sort of sports so like yeah. the super bowl the world series the NBA finals yeah any of the soccer stuff like like how the bulls perform in the same place as the hawks mm-hmm. like that kind of thing yeah. it's like a floor for every sport but it'd be kind of cool if like all sports did like their big sort of championship yeah stuff, at right? the carlos amphitheater yeah 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 that would be pretty cool we're back now that we're done with that segment let's talk about a little bit more about rome like we saw in the Colosseum, arches were loved by the romans both for their architectural design and support of buildings and monuments and the most notable structure in rome that used arches was the roman aqueduct systems which were used to bring fresh water to cities throughout the empire and roman arches were also used to construct the famous arch of titus in the forum romanum and let's talk about that the arch of titus is a triumphal arch um, which was commissioned by Dominican, who was Roman emperor from 81 to 96 CE and it commemorates the victories of his father um, Vespasian and his brother Titus in the Jewish war in Judea as well as being a political and religious statement expressing the divinity of the late emperor Titus the arch was constructed using pentalic marble white marble white marble from Athens with marble marble reliefs on the side panels with one panel showing the start of Titus's 71 CE victory triumph procession and the other relief showing Titus riding a four horse chariot and these panels were considered major developments in Roman architecture because they were the first full attempt by Roman sculptors to create the illusion of space by being portrayed in three quarter view and in addition running around the whole arch is a small frieze which is a decorative area among the columns and below above the columns and below the roof line which depicts the whole triumphal procession and is set in the center of each side of the archway is a keystone which is a wedge shaped stone at the apex of an arch and it was it's usually the last piece in construction and it locks all the stones of an arch in place so that it can bear the entire weight of the arch because they since they're, they're using stone or granite it's so heavy and um it was representing Roma and the Roman people. And um, the interior vault is coffered, which is a series of sunken panels in the shape of a square in the ceiling with a central representation of apotheosis of Titus, which is basically the act of a deceased ruler, emperor, king, being def- or queen being defined as divine by his successor, um, being carried to the heaven by an eagle. Now that we're finished talking about Roman architecture, I just have to say that their architecture has provided magnificent magnificent structures by combining a wide range of materials with unique, never-before-seen designs, and they were able to turn architecture into an art form and have immeasurably influenced all following Western architecture right up until present day. And now on to the last segment. Oh, I'm so sad for this episode to end. I love talking about this stuff. Um... 
But this topic, the last one, is Romanesque architecture. And Romanesque architecture is an architectural style in Europe and is a period of time from about the mid-11th century to the introduction of Gothic architecture. And it was the product of the great expansion of monasticism, which is a way of living that's religious and isolated from people and being self-disciplined about that, as well as larger churches now needing to accommodate the numerous monks, priests, pilgrims coming to their um, religious relics. And Romanesque Romanesque architecture can also be characterized by their towering round arches, their massive stone and brickwork, small windows, thick walls, a tendency for housing art and sculptures depicting biblical scenes, a blocky earthbound appearance, and the growing sophistication in vaulting. Um, Romanesque architecture, when you look at it as a whole, features a lot of churches because there was more movement in town and towns and cities. Um, there was a widely felt relief that the conclusion of the first millennium hadn't brought the end of the world and an increase in pilgrimages, which meant building grander churches to draw in and host faithful and host the faithful. Romanesque churches incorporated semicircle arches for windows and doors, barrel and barrel or groin vaults, and groin vaults are the crossing of two barrel vaults to support the roof of the dave side aisles with side aisles with galleries above and smaller towel top towers at the church's western end. The inside expanded on the early basilica basilica plan, incorporating radiating chapels, which were projecting chapels arranged radically around the ambulatory to accommodate more priests, and the ambulatory, which is the walking area on the side of the church. Romanesque architecture relies upon its walls or sections of walls called piers to bear the load of the structure rather than using arches, columns, vaults, and other systems to manage the weight. The material used in this period differs across Europe, with some using burnt, while others use limestone, granite, and flint. In addition, there was a great number of Roman columns salv- salvaged and reused in the interiors of many Romanesque buildings, with many of them being marble. In addition to groin vaults, the Romanesque period gave birth to the sex partite vault, which is three barrel vaults intersecting, as seen in Saint in Saint-Antienne. Now, Saint-Antienne is a former monastery dedicated to St. Stephen, being one of the most notable Romanesque buildings in Normandy, and it was built with cane stone, which is a light cream limestone found in the northwest region of France, along with its sister church, the St. Trinité. The two churches, which were semi-complete at the time, stood in competition for many decades from the start of the construction in 1066, and it was finally donated by William the Conqueror and his wife, Matilda of Flanders as penalty for their marriage against the Pope's ruling, and William ended up being buried here. The church featured an original Romanesque um, apse, which is a semicircle or um, polygonal termination uh, to the choir um, chancel or aisle of a secular building, and the early sexpartite vaulting throughout used using c- circular ribs and ribs being an arch of monastery generally projected from the undersurface of the vault. In 1120 the church had a very important feature added, um, the ribbed vault and that is an arched form created an arched form created by the intersection of two or three barrel vaults used to support the weight of walls or a ceiling or roof, as well as replacing the apse with a chevette, which is a style of construction creating an ambulatory and radiating chapels at the eastern arm of the church. And 
both of these additions were characteristic of the Gothic era, being that they were done long after the start of its construction, and another characteristic of many Romanesque buildings were portals, which were grand entrances to import structure, as seen in the infamous South Portal of St. Pierre in um, Moissac, France. And the South Portal of St. Pierre, which is, like I just said, located in Moissac, France, is one of the most impressive Romanesque portals of the 12th century, with carved images occupying the walls, the extended porch, the door, and above and around the door. The portal also highlights many of the defining characteristics of Romanesque architecture. The portal is divided in half vertically by a trameau, which is a section of wall or pillar between two openings, decorated with three pairs of intertwined lions and lionesses, who are there to symbolically guard the entry into the sacred place of the church. The portal also has a, t a tympanum, which is the showing place for sculptures and decorations, surrounded by three archivolts, meaning a band of molding around the lower curve of the arch, which have various foliated patterns, leaf patterns carved into the individual blocks of stone. And during the Romanesque period, a subject popular for tympanum decoration is known as the Maestas Domini, which is the which means Christ in Majesty, and on this tympanum we see a depiction of a passage from the Book of Revelation, showing a sort of esoteric concept of the second coming of Christ and the end of time. And visitors to the portal were met with spectacular imagery that warned against sin and reminded them of Christ's sacrifice and His final coming. Now that we finished talking about Rome Romanesque architecture, I just got to say that. Romanesque art and architecture innovatively combined classic influences seen in the Roman ruins and in Byzantine illuminated manuscripts and mosaics with the decorative and more abstract styles of earlier northern tribes to create the foundation of Western Christian architecture for centuries to come. Though it was a precursor to the Gothic style, the Romanesque would see revivals in the 17th and 19th century as, architect, as architects came to appreciate the clarity and formidable nature of the Romanesque facade when applied across a range of buildings from department stores to modern university buildings. Okay, I think we're done with this podcast episode. Oh, I'm so sad. I love talking about this stuff. But, yeah, I just want to say how cool this topic is um, and how diverse it is and how I had literally no idea how cool and diverse and how there's so many different subsections of architecture in so many different styles throughout all these different time periods because sitting in a class, um, especially a college class with and learning more about these and having a class that's more tailored and specific to just the art and architecture of certain eras is super cool and I really loved learning about it this year with my professor Dr. Klein. Um, I thought every piece of information was super interesting and hearing about all these structures throughout your life and seeing them in pictures and in movies or whatever and then finally being able to learn how they were built who built them the reasons for them being built their past their history their feet like it's just super cool to figure out and to learn more about this kind of stuff and i hope that um you guys got something out of this too when you were able maybe you're walking i hope you can walk away uh with some new information or something that you learned from this because i really had a great time making this podcast it was so fun i really live for talking about this kind of stuff not just architecture like anything history like i love a good little history lesson um but 
Thank you so much for watching. Oh, I also did want to mention that my sources for this podcast were Britannica.com and worldhistory.org. So thank you so much to all the information from those websites. Um, most of it was coming from Professor Klein and the notes that I took and everything that I've learned this semester just being in my head. But there was a couple of the vocabulary terms and everything that I, defined, that I had to define through there. But... I hope that you all, whenever you're listening, whenever you're listening to this, have a great rest of your night, day, morning, afternoon, week, month, whatever. Um, Christmas is coming soon, so yay! So excited for that. And the holidays—I don't want to just say Christmas. The holidays are coming up. And um, thank you guys so much for watching. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. And I'll talk to you guys later. Bye bye.